Hello and welcome to the Curious Life podcast. My name is Yana Firestone. Today I'm joined by former publishing powerhouse and design expert, Mr. Neil Whittaker. Neil, thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much, Yana, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Am I near enough to the mic? Yeah, why don't you maybe wriggle in just a little <laughs> bit, just a little bit in closer. case. Yes, okay. excellent. No, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Well, I was really looking forward to this interview. I know I, I got in touch a while ago because I think you not only have this huge media presence and everybody knows who you are and you're doing wonderful things on television, which we'll get to, you've had this really long and interesting career. But because of my background as a therapist, I'm always interested in the things that get people to where they are. What are the things we've overcome What are the things that might have been challenging or fabulous or things that have led us to where we are today? So the backstory is kind of my my lane. So in terms of your story, you started off a long, long way away from this beautiful hotel here in Sydney. In fact, almost the other side of the world. Absolutely, on the other side of the world. Yeah. Yeah, In the UK. In the UK. So can you tell us a little bit about growing up in the UK and what that life was like for you? Oh gosh, yes, where do I start? Um, Look, I was born in the 60s, I always say I was born in the 60s, grew up in the 70s, came of age in the 80s, um, and that all happened in the UK. Yeah, I was born just outside of London, um, in in what was the county of Kent Mm -hmm. back in the 60s when I was born, but these days it's kind of southeast London because London has sprawled out and out and out. Uh, So I was born in a place called Rochester. Which is uh, yeah, sort of about 20, 20 miles from the centre of London. Uh, but when I was about five years old, my parents moved to the coast. So I actually grew up on the south coast of England in a place called Margate, mm. uh, which has subsequently become quite famous because it's also the birthplace of Tracy Emin, the artist, mm. uh, who's the same vintage as me. More of that later. Um, but uh, you know, as, as Tracy's fame has grown, then so has Margate because she, she's she's a Margate girl. In fact, I think she lives back there now, and uh, she even gave uh, Margate a, a, an art gallery, Turner Contemporary, um, several years ago. So that's where I grew up and went to school in a place called Ramsgate. Look, I mean, I I, I can't say anything bad about my my childhood upbringing. I think it was a very ordinary, mm-hmm. ordinary childhood, ordinary upbringing, whatever that means I guess the only thing that was extraordinary about it is that my father passed away when I was only 14 years old Um, and so I guess that was was a a very sort of unusual and unforeseen uh, drama Mm. not just in my life but in the in the life of of my um, my siblings and my family Mm. Um, but in terms of my schooling my education sort of cultural background it was all to me pretty ordinary late 60s early 70s English stuff well you could say that that's quite lucky then if there aren't any major things you have to complain about your childhood you're doing pretty well yeah look I mean you know I was never a great sportsman and I went to an all-boys grammar school where there was a huge emphasis placed on sport so I always felt a little bit um kind of at the back of the line when it came to all that kind of stuff. Um, but I think I compensated in other ways because I sort of worked out that if I was going to make my mark in that kind of environment, it had to be academically, intellectually. So I think I was a pretty damn good scholar, pretty damn good pupil. <laughs> and I kind of rose through the ranks that way and made my mark because I could not make my mark on, on the playing field, on, on the sports field. That was never going to happen. 
but I wanted to make my mark. You know, I've, I've always had, um, I guess, a, a sort of competitive side to me. You know, I, I want to be challenged. I want to succeed. Um, and I think I probably worked out at an early age that it was only going to be through my my sort of my brain power, if you like, or my communication skills that I was ever going to make that mark. <laughs> <laughs> well, luckily for us that you had that drive. I just want to circle back a tiny bit. You know, you mentioned that you lost your dad at 14 mm. and mm. that is such a tender age and such a, a time in a, a kid's life, of development and mm. so much going on as you're moving into your independence. And I guess around 14, 15, you're really kind of breaking yeah. away from your identity as a kid in the family and more so of a young person Mm. at large did losing your dad have much of an impact you think on your development I mean what was that like at such a young age look honest answer is it probably made me old overnight Mm. I think I grew up very very quickly Um, you know one minute I was 14 and the next minute I was you know 24 Um, because I think something like that does does uh, age you age is the the wrong word matures you Mm because you're suddenly dealing with emotional stuff that you've never had to deal with before and that other kids are not dealing with at the same time or at the same rate. Um, look, I, I have to, I guess, you know, I, I have to be quite frank with you. I didn't have a close <clears throat> relationship with my father. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were never particularly close. Um, so the, the kind of emotional scar, the emotional hurt was perhaps not as great as it might have been had we been very close. Mm. Um, I think for me the emotional hurt was more about seeing the impact that his passing had on my brothers mm-hmm. and my mother um, who were closer to him than I was. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but but certainly you know, it was a cataclysmic event to happen in the life of, of an adolescent yeah. um, and in the life of, of my brothers too because I have one brother who's four years younger than me so okay. he was only 10 years old. Um, and then I have another brother who's four years older, so he was 18. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were all pretty young to, to lose a parent, you know, regardless of, of the relationship with that parent. Yeah, absolutely. And then it changes the entire dynamic of the family. Yes, it does. And then your relationship with your mum as well, because you're probably seeing yeah. her in a much more vulnerable state. Oh, look, she was... I mean, she was pretty important in my life before the passing of my father, but when my father had died, um, she became obviously the sort of the pivot around which our lives revolved. And she wasn't old herself. I mean, gosh, she was, she was uh, if, if my father was only 43 years of age when he passed away, um, I think that means my mother was probably about 41. Wow. So we're talking young people, young oh, people, yeah. you know, especially by today's standards. Um, and I think my mother did the most amazing job, uh, you know, bringing up three three sons. Tough job. Yeah, on on her own, and yeah, um, yeah and she, she did it. Wow. And to be quite honest, I don't think I ever heard her complain. Really. You know, she would have had her private moments definitely mm. when she was probably despairing, but we never heard it. She did a damn good job. Superwoman. Mm. I think my Mm. kids hear me complain on the daily. So there's something to take from that because these are the things that Mm. you cherish and these are the things that you remember and how magical that she spared you. Yes. All of that. Yeah. So 
I guess things were changing. You were driving yourself forward in an academic sense. Mm. And I did hear that you'd always kind of had in mind that you might end up in drama school. And so what happened there? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. Look, I I think I did have ambitions when I was young. I thought I was going to end up as an actor, Mm -hmm. but it, it wasn't to be. Um, I mean, look, when I when I was at school, I used to love taking part in, in school plays and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, although I, I don't remember ever having sort of lead roles in particular. I was always a bit of a support, support act. Um, <laughs> Important, bit, nonetheless. Bit player. Um, <laughs> and then when I went to university, I, I did a bit more acting as well. And it, yes, it was definitely something that interested me. But I don't think I had the necessary fire in my belly. Mm. Um, which, you know, maybe I wouldn't have had the talent either. I don't know. I never got that far. <laughs> um, but I think at, at that sort of young age, it's, it's the passion, it's the determination to succeed at all costs. I think it's got to be like the only thing in the entire world that you want. You've got to want it more than anything. Mm. And I just didn't have that. So I never pursued it beyond uni. I had every intention of going to drama school, um, but it, it actually never happened. My life took a different path. Mm, sure did. So you talk about, you know, coming of age in the 80s. Yep. And I was born at the very beginning of the 80s. So I had a, an early childhood in mm. the 80s. So I have a taste of that time. But I can only imagine what it must have been like as a young person really getting to enjoy the 80s. What were the standout moments for you? Can you think of times culturally or personally that the 80s were really... Mm. The 80s was, uh, it, was a, it was an interesting time. Um, I mean, I was, I, I was 18 in 1980. Um, so, you know, I was sort of coming of age and entering adulthood just as the 80s began. In fact, I went to university in 1980, so the first three years of that decade were at uni. I mean, looking back on it, I mean, it, it's interesting because, of course, when you're living through an era, you don't really analyse it, yeah. you know, in the same way that, that history does. True. Um, you know, just as we won't sort of, we, we don't analyse the decade we're living in now, but history will obviously do that for us down the track. I mean, the 80s in the UK was a difficult time in many ways mm. because it was the years of the Thatcher government. You know, we had a very repressive right-wing government. Mm-hmm. Um, there was an awful lot of industrial unrest, um, an awful lot of political unrest mm. generally, a lot of very unhappy people. Um, a lot of striking, a lot of industrial action. What that did, um, I think, was created an atmosphere of great creativity. Mm. There was a lot of underground creativity. It was a fantastic era for music, for the arts. Um, Everything flourished, probably as a result of that awfully repressive government Mm. that we were all living under. Um, so, you know, it was a great time to, to go to uni, to then move to London, to be following bands, following fashion. It was exciting. It was, it, yeah, it, w- it was a pretty special time. I mean, I look back on the 80s with, with a great degree of affection, even though I'm not sure at the time I was really enjoying myself because I think I had a lot of anxiety and angst about life in general mm-hmm. at that time. Yeah. I wish I'd enjoyed it more, basically. But that's the beauty of hindsight. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I dread to think what we're going to look back on this decade and see apart from duck lips and lots of fillers and I don't know what else really is going to mark this era. As I said, history will decide that for us. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, is, is the anxiety and the angst that you had at that time something that 
again you were aware of at the time or something that you can look back now and think gee uh, that was a tough time and at the time you were just kind of muddling through look i i don't know it's uh, you know um hindsight is, is a wonderful thing i think probably i was aware of it because i think i just admitted that i, I didn't enjoy life as much as i should have done at that young age and you know, you know that question about what would you have said to your young self yeah. i mean if, if you were going to ask me that i would probably have said to my young self at the age of 18 just for god's sake chill out relax yeah. you know let life unfold mm -hmm. don't be so anxious i was anxious about my sexuality it was it was you know a time when i was sort of coming out as a gay man um and you know that they were different times i mean it, mm -hmm. it was this was best part of 40 years ago yeah. um things were different i was also i think probably worried about my career where that was going to go what i was going to do with my life yeah, there, there was a lot of anxiety there, yeah. a lot of anxiety there. Did you have a lot of support around you? I mean, you talk about starting to become aware of who you are mm. and how to express that to the world. And was it something, I know it was a very different time, but was it was your sexuality something that you were able to talk about with people, family? No, friends? if I'm honest, no, not really. I mean, I had a group of, of very close friends, um, and I'm happy to say that uh, you know, some of them are still very close friends to this day even though we live on opposite sides of the world. Um, but, Yana, these were different times. Mm. You didn't talk about your sexuality. That was, and, and don't forget this with the UK too, yeah. where we didn't talk about anything private yeah. or anything personal. <laughs> it wasn't done. Stiff upper, upper lip and all <laughs> Absolutely that. Absolutely, stiff upper lip. Yeah. Um, you, you just didn't talk about that stuff. It, it, it was different to today where we do talk about that stuff, where we kind of wear it on our, on our sleeve. Yeah. Um, you, you just didn't do it. You didn't go there. You just got on with it and you worked stuff out for yourself. But there was an awful lot of anxiety at that time too because, of course, it was the era of AIDS. Yeah. You know, so my coming out as a gay man, and I have to say, you know, there was no great coming out moment. Yeah. That didn't happen. Um, it was just a sort of gradual, slow process that happened over a period of probably a couple of years where people just suddenly sort of drew their own conclusions. Mm. Um, you know, there was never any time when I stood up on a, you know, on a soapbox and said, yes, I'm gay. <laughs> yeah. Never happened. I, yeah. You know, I wish I had a great coming out story to yeah. tell you, but I don't. Yeah. Um, but I guess I'm very fortunate that coinciding with that period in my life, was this growing awareness of AIDS. Mm. Um, and I'm, I'm just so grateful that I became aware of it when I did, because a lot of people my age, a lot of my contemporaries are no longer with us. Yeah. Um, but fortunately, I became aware of that. But then, of course, that also instilled a great deal of fear yeah. that, you know, something to do with your sexuality has this uh, association with death and disease and it can all get a bit mixed up in your head absolutely especially at that young young age absolutely and i can only imagine how conflicting that would mm. be and i remember i don't know if you had the same kinds of ads on television the grim reaper yeah, yeah we did i mean it, it was absolute fear-mongering mm. and yes there were mm. at that when when nobody really understood the disease no. and what was going on yes it was very scary yeah but and I, this this was sort of when would this have been? This this wasn't sort of 1980. This would have been several years later. I think mm. probably sort of 83, 84, 85, that kind of time yeah. was when the Grim Reaper campaign. Mm. But certainly um, at that time, you know, that it, it did instill a great deal of fear 
amongst people, the, pop, the population in general. Yeah. So that was another reason why you didn't go around discussing your sexuality because people just did not want to know at that time. Yeah. At that time. I just feel terrible for the, the number of people that probably didn't make it through. Mm. And I don't mean physically, but mentally, mm. having to contain such complex feelings about yourself. Mm. I mean, it's brilliant that we finally come to an age where people do talk about yes. everything. And I, I actually was saying to someone the other day, I actually think it's kind of gross that anyone who has uh, any kind of non-heterosexual preference, let's mm, just say, mm. has to come out. No. You know, I don't have to tell my parents, guess what, I'm straight, you know? <laughs> so I but, just... But like I just said, you know, I, yeah. I, there was no great coming out. Um, yeah. I mean, that has become very much a part of gay culture now. Yes. Um, this yeah. sort of coming out moment. Um, and it, you know, it's, it's absolutely not a bad thing at all. I'm not saying that for one, one second. But certainly, you know, becoming aware of my sexuality as a young man in the early 1980s, it was a very different culture and you just kind of got on with it. Mm. And, you know, your friends and your family started to sort of draw their own conclusions. I mean, it sounds almost comical. (laughs) um, But, you know, there's that there's that point when you're sort of your elderly relatives sort of talking about you playing the field and haven't quite right, met the right woman yet, you know? And <laughs> yeah. then all of a sudden, it's, you know, I don't think it's ever going to happen. Right. And uh, yeah, yeah. How, how's your friend kind of thing? <laughs> <laughs> and you know, you look back on it and, yeah. and I guess there is there is a comical side to it as well. Um, but it, it was just a slow process of, of allowing it to dawn on people. I mean, maybe it was cowardly. Maybe it would have been better if I had sat down and said to my, my family, look, this is the way it is, I'm gay. But I, I don't think the outcome would have been any different. Yeah. I think allowing them to just draw their own conclusions and accept it was probably the way to go yeah. at that time. Yeah. And were you, when, when it kind of dawned on them, do you think, was it sort of okay? Were you embraced? Um, embraced, no. Was it okay? Yes. Okay. Um, I mean, look, I'm, I'm very, very fortunate, Yana, that, that my sexuality has never been a problem uh, with, with my, my family, my friends, uh, my colleagues. Uh, it really hasn't. I mean, I have uh, two wonderfully supportive brothers who both live in the UK. Um, and, you know, David, my partner, and I are, albeit extended, because we're in Australia, we're extended family, but we're very much part of their family. Um, and no, it, it couldn't be less of an issue. Uh, my mother was yeah, a little bit, I mean, she was also a creature of her time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she took a little bit longer to get used to the idea. But I mean, sadly, she's no longer with us either. She passed away about 20 years ago. But, you know, by, by the end of her life, she certainly had totally accepted it and come to terms with it. Yeah. So it, it, it was never a, a real problem. That's great. Again, it's, you know, thing, things mm. have kind of tracked along nicely mm. for you over the years you know yeah i mean look i'm not i'm not going to pretend that uh, everything in my life has has been plain sailing of course like everyone i've had massive ups and downs mm-hmm. over my you know 50 plus years um but it's sort of fair to say that that side of my life the sort of the sexuality side of my life has has been reasonably smooth mm-hmm. and yeah. maybe that's nice for people to hear because mm. you know we do hear the stories of, of the very difficult mm. families and the very difficult pathways to acceptance that, mm. that have been challenging and maybe it's nice to hear that it actually it can just be okay yes and it doesn't have to be a big it deal absolutely can be okay yeah it absolutely can be okay yeah 
I mean, the, you know, the one thing I would urge anyone listening to this, who, who, if they're going through that kind of sort of dilemma at, at an early age, is to just find the courage to be honest with yourself. Mm. Be honest with yourself and and tell the world, yeah, this is this is who I am. Yeah. Because once you do that, you will feel so much happier. Absolutely, and there's so much more support mm. available now. And I work with young people, as mm. I was talking with you about off air. And the number of kids who would have been so isolated mm. because they just aren't aware that other people exist mm. like them. I'm talking about trans kids and gay kids and yeah. kids that maybe have families that are just not very open yeah. to other ways of being. And the fact that they can just jump on their computer and find mm. entire flourishing mm. communities mm. of people just like them, I think has been the greatest gift that the internet Absolutely. has given. I mean, that's a very interesting point you're making because, of course, for me, it was university. Because mm. you know, I, I was a student long before the internet existed. <laughs> yes. uh, you know, we're talking about sort of 1980 to 83. Mm. Um, and that was where I met my tribe. Mm. I mean, I think, I think, you know, going to university made my life a lot easier and gave me the courage to accept my sexuality and share it with other people. Um, you know, I came from a, a fairly sort of traditional repressive boys grammar school mm. in England where certainly it was a very different culture. And you know, I have to confess that, you know, I did feel isolated um, at school because, it, yes, it was, a, it was a very private culture. It was a very masculine, very macho, uh, sports-dominated culture that I wasn't particularly comfortable in. Mm. Then I went to university and studied an arts degree and I suddenly realized that there were people like me. And all of a sudden, in that university environment, you can choose your friends. Yeah. You can choose like-minded individuals. And suddenly, I had this, this group of, of male and female friends who were cut from completely different cloth to anyone I'd ever met before. And it was wonderful. Mm. It was wonderful. And, you know, I found my tribe, and I'm very fortunate to say I've, I've kind of stuck with my tribe throughout my life. But it was at uni that I found them. Mm, that's so important. Yeah. And that's a great message to any young people listening. Because yeah. often you don't find your tribe at school. And you don't, you've don't. No. only got a very select group mm. of people to pick from. Mm. And then once you leave school, the whole world opens up. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's exciting. Yeah. Absolutely. And validating at the same time. Yeah. So you had this incredible kind of, I guess, almost a coming of age where mm. you're you found your people feeling like you're getting comfortable in your own skin and then you start having this really creative career you've done so many things but I understand you were working as a stylist is mm. that right in the beginning mm. um, no in the beginning I worked in public relations right so my, my yes. first job um, was working for a very high-profile PR agency in the mid-80s in London, a company called Lynn Franks, a woman called Lynn Franks, who is still very much around, still very sort of high-profile in the UK and, and doing all sorts of things. But Lynn, at that time, was kind of the face of the fashion industry. I mean, if you were going to work in public relations in the fashion industry, Lynn was really the only person to work for. And of course, well, I say of course, you might not know this, but it was that PR agency that the comedy Ab Fab was based on down the track. How brilliant. Yeah. What a place to work. It was, look, it was, it was a pretty 
wild start to a career when I look back on it. Again, you know, at the time, yeah. I just thought, okay, well, this is what working life is like. You know, this this is my first job. This is this is what it's like to sort of go to an office every day and and earn a salary. And <laughs> but of course, looking back on it, it was a crazy place to start. Was it champagne? And no, parties? no, 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 no. It wasn't. It was nothing like Ab Fab. Okay. Um, it was actually very, very. Uh, it was hard work. It was really hard work. We worked incredibly long hours, and you know, this was back in the days before. There was any uh, you know, internet or computers or anything like that. You know, this was back in the days when if you were mailing out invitations, you stuffed envelopes <laughs> by hand oh and God. wrote the names on the addresses, wow. um, and then you delivered them. Mm. You know, you went off in a taxi or a car or something around London and delivered them. You know, it was wow. different times. Yeah. No social media, yeah. no internet. Imagine. Tough. Well, obviously, it did good things for you mm. because that kind of propelled you into this creative career that wasn't acting but mm, it yeah. was a whole different world so you're in PR then you're doing some styling work was that just private work on the side uh, no no I did um oh, oh gosh you're really digging back in, into my memory now um <laughs> it was late 80s I did have a couple of years when I worked freelance as a fashion stylist yeah okay. so sort of between sort of uh, winding up my my PR career and starting in the publishing world I worked as a fashion stylist, mm. um, and I, ha I had some big clients actually, like Marks and Spencer, um, and a couple of other sort of big English store groups. I used to do all their in-store advertising and, and point of sale and brochures and all, all that kind of stuff. And I got to travel a bit too: mm. Caribbean, Miami, Florida. Yeah. Wow, great for someone at the beginning of their yeah, career too. Yeah, it was it was cool. It yeah. Was cool. Didn't so, make much money, but I had, a, I had a good time. Yeah. Well, that's what's important, isn't mm. it? And that's feeding the drive and feeding mm. the passion. And then you start maybe thinking about other things you can do. Mm. So you were working, as you said, you were doing in-store stuff. And mm -hmm. I know that you were working on magazines in Marks and Spencers and yes. some other places as well. Yeah. Look, I cut my teeth um, on in-store magazines in the UK. Yeah. I mean, what, what we call um, custom publishing here in Australia, they call contract publishing in, in England. I spent quite a few years working for a couple of different publishing houses over there in London that produce magazines for clients. Mm -hmm. So I got to edit the magazine for Marks and Spencer. I got to edit a magazine for Ikea, another one for Debenhams, Store mm. Group. So, I mean, they were all great little magazines. They were lifestyle magazines yeah. and we used to produce them beautifully, but you know, ultimately they were produced for a client and yeah. for that client's customers. So the question is, are they jobs that you fell into or yeah. were they, okay, so it wasn't like you were looking no. to go into that work? No, okay. this, is, this is the thing. I mean, when yeah. you look back on my career path, it looks like I must have been incredibly focused and incredibly <laughs> um, you know, selective and, and everything. But in yeah. fact, it wasn't really like that. Mm. It was kind of organic. Yeah. Um, you know, it would be a bit naive of me to say that I just fell into these jobs because I didn't. I, you know, I interviewed for them and, and I worked hard to get them. Um, but there was no really clearly defined uh, career path mm. there. So you're just going from interest to interest, basically. Yeah, my yeah. modus operandi really was to just keep working in jobs that I enjoyed, mm. and I was never quite sure where it was taking me. You, the definition of mindfulness, just living in the moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I certainly didn't see it like that at the time. Yeah. Um, but yes, I guess in, in in a way it was like that. I guess the only career goal I ever had was to come to Australia. I have heard you say in other interviews that 
you always thought the Australian lifestyle magazines were top range, best quality magazines. Was that the reason that you had interest in Australia? Yeah. Really? Well, it was, it was twofold. <clears throat> I mean, yes, definitely. Professionally, um, you know, I used to see all those wonderful Aussie mags like Gourmet Traveller, like Bell, like Vogue Living, like Vogue Entertaining, you know, some of which I've now had the, the massive good fortune to edit myself. Um, they used to land on my desk over in London, and we did used to look at them and think, wow, you know, they, they really know how to do mags yeah. in Australia. Um, they were the best, and I think they still are the best, you know, 20, 30 years later. So that was a reason why I wanted to come here. But I had visited Australia and fallen in love with it. Mm. So there was like an emotional desire to come here, but there was also a professional mm. desire to come here. I'm always so interested in people that make such drastic geographical changes and, and stick with them. My partner's Dutch and he was born in New Zealand but um, raised over in the Netherlands and mm-hmm. he now lives in Australia. Not because of me, he was already living here before I met him because he had that Kiwi passport, of course. But like you, he just kind of always had a, an interest in Australia and mm. could see himself living there. And I'm someone that I love traveling and I've been all over the place and there are so many cities that I've fallen in love with, but I don't know that I could see myself permanently moving my life away from all the people I love and my history and mm. everything. So I'm so interested in that drive, you know? Was it something that you thought was going to be your move for good? Yes, yes. I think a simple answer to your question would just be yes. I think something in me knew that I would probably live in Australia. But okay, I'll tell you this, I'll make it as quick as I can. (laughs) (laughs) I'll try and edit as I go. I I came to Australia for the first time in 1983, I think it was. Mm -hmm. Sorry, not 83, 93. 1993 um, and I was working for the Marks and Spencer magazine at the time and I came over here uh, to Sydney with with my then art director and we were on a trip I think that was sponsored by Qantas Mm -hmm. and we flew into Sydney I had never been to Australia before flew into Sydney got in quite late at night and checked into a little hotel literally it's funny just down below where we're sitting now uh, on Darlinghurst Road a little hotel called Lotel Okay. little boutique hotel which was really super cool back in the early 90s you know boutique hotels were a new thing yeah. um, anyway checked into my hotel and um, got up the following morning and, and anyone listening to this that knows me will laugh at this because I'm famous for always needing a pharmacy <laughs> wherever I go in the world the first thing I always need to find is the local pharmacy because right. there's always something I've forgotten yeah. or something I need so running true to form <laughs> I got up the following morning Day one in Darlinghurst, Sydney, looking for a pharmacy. And I got came out of the hotel and I walked down the road in the direction of what is now St. Vincent's Hospital. Mm-hmm. And I just had this overwhelming feeling that I'd been there before. Mm. Now, I know that sounds really sort of hippy-dippy and cliched, but I've never felt that feeling since and I've never felt it before. But it was just, a, it's, like, it's like I knew where I was going. Mm. I was in a city that I'd never visited before, had no connection with, but I knew where I was and I felt totally and utterly at home. Now, fast forward several years, 
um, you know, I, w I went back to London and I stayed working in London for several more years and I didn't actually make it to, to Australia until 1999, so six years later. Mm -hmm. um, and I did move here and I was living in, in Sydney. Um, and I had a close friend at the time who was a professional genealogist. Mm. This was long before sort of Ancestry.com and it's like, you know, if you wanted your family tree done, you had to go to a, a genealogist. And Benoit, his name was, he did my family tree for me and discovered that in the mid-19th century, I had Australian ancestry. Whoa. I had Australian ancestry from Sydney. That there was a branch of my family um, in the 1840s that came out from the UK. There was a guy who came out and, and stayed in Sydney for something like 30 years, married an Australian woman, then went back to the UK. Wow. I'm so into stuff like this. So it kind of all made sense mm. that there was something in my DNA. Yeah. Um, I mean, again, you know, I know it all might sound very sort of over romantic, but I'd never experienced anything like that before. Mm. And it was that overwhelming sense that I was in a place that I was meant to be. Yeah. And that's how I've remained feeling for 20 years. Wow. And if you're into things like believing in the universe and everything, mm. I think everything that's happened for you here in Australia mm proves that point entirely. Mm. I think you were definitely meant to be here. You've mm. just had success after success and things are going... Well, Jana, look, thank you. That's lovely. I mean, but it's not even about success. It, it's about feeling comfortable. And, mm. and maybe the success has been as a result of feeling comfortable mm. because I certainly feel comfortable living in this country yeah. in a way that I never felt in the UK, which is weird because that's where I was born. And yeah. you could say that's where my roots are. But I actually feel that I've put down stronger roots in this country. Mm, amazing. Mm. Well, we're very lucky to have you. <laughs> well, I'm very lucky to be here. <laughs> so, okay, you came to Australia. You started, was, was your first publishing job here yep. for... Murdoch magazine. Okay. Yeah. Um, a, a lovely guy, Matt Hanbury, mm -hmm. who I have a great deal of respect for. Um, Matt gave me my first job and was instrumental in getting me over here. We, we, we first met in London and then he, he brought me over here. He, at the time he was running um, Murdoch magazines, which eventually all got folded into Pacific magazines. Mm. Um, but in those days it was Murdoch, it was an independent publishing company and I came over here to launch a title for Matt. Mm -hmm. uh, long story short, um, it'll take forever to explain all the details, basically the magazine that he brought me over to edit uh, never, never actually happened, mm -hmm. um, but by default I ended up editing another magazine called Marie Claire Lifestyle mm -hmm. and here I am 20 years later. Amazing. Yeah. So you're obviously an editor and, and working at high levels in publishing for a long time. Were you passionate about the industry? Mm. Or, so was it, was it publishing that you were interested in or was it the creative stuff around it that was your draw card? No, no, it was publishing. I loved, loved magazines. Mm. Absolutely. I had, you know, I used to laugh and say, I've got ink in my veins, you know, <laughs> um, seriously. Yeah. Uh, I know that sounds very corny, but it's true. I mean, I, I'm, I'm an old school magazine man, yeah. basically. And, you know, I started working in magazines a very long time ago when it was a very different culture. Mm. Um, but I absolutely never lost that pleasure and satisfaction that comes from seeing a new issue come off the printing press and land on your desk and 
going to the newsagents. I mean, it, it was an absolute thrill. Mm. Um, and I, I loved every moment of it, or almost every moment of it. Um, and, you know, and over a period of years, I got to edit some wonderful magazines. I, I got to launch Delicious magazine here in Australia. Uh, I got to edit Vogue Entertaining and Travel and Vogue Living, Bell. You know, some wonderful, wonderful yeah. titles. I feel like I've been so blessed yeah. you know, with the magazine career that I had. Absolutely. And so were you sad to say goodbye to that when you kind of had these opportunities to put your talents elsewhere in the television realm? Look, it was kind of bittersweet. Mm. But, oh, look, I guess I guess there's one thing I, I have always had in my life um, which is, has worked in my favour, and that is a sense of timing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I kind of knew that my time in magazines was up. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean that in a sort of dramatic yeah. way. I just, you know, the, mag- the magazine industry has changed an awful lot. Mm-hmm. It's a very different industry to the one that I entered, you know, 25, almost 30 years ago, if I count the years in, in London. Mm-hmm. It requires different skills. Mm-hmm. And it requires a different language based around uh, online, digital, yeah. social media. You know, that, that is publishing in, in 2019. Mm. It, it's not just print and paper. Yeah. You know, any, anyone who, who thinks that sort of being an editor in 2019 is, is about producing a print magazine is very naive because mm. it's not. It's far more than that. And I just felt that there were people out there who were probably better at that than I was. Mm-hmm. I was very fortunate to have the possibility of, of a sort of new career in television um, you know, in front of me. Yeah. Uh, so I felt like I was in a very privileged and very fortunate position and it felt like the right time to step in that direction. Yeah. It was like a fork in the road moment, mm. you know, do I go this way or do I go this way? Yeah. But well, I've gone down that way, I've loved travelling that path, yeah. um, but now it's time to see what's down that path. Let's yeah. turn right instead of left. Yeah, and you did that, and you were first uh, hosting a show, or was it judging a show called oh. Homemade? Oh, yes. yes, 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 that's where it all started. I mean, look, for, for quite a few years, Yana, I was able to, to juggle publishing and television quite mm. comfortably. Um, so, yeah, Homemade, well, that was 10 years ago, 2009, okay. um, and that was a show for Channel 9, uh, where I was a judge, yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. And then that led to The Block a year later, 2010. Um, and again, you know, I was able to continue that role on the block because basically it was at the weekend. You know, I, I filmed on Sundays. Yeah. Um, so I was able to hold down a, a nine to five Monday to Friday job as well. But that fork in the road that I was just talking about came in 2016 when I was offered the opportunity to co-host a show for Foxtel. Mm. And then that was going to be a big commitment. Yeah. So that was when I really had to choose. Do I go this way or do I go that way? Yeah. And I, I want to get to Love It All Listed Australia mm. because I love that show and I've got so many questions which I don't even know if you can answer <laughs> on air. But I guess uh, what's interesting, I mean, I'm, I'm wondering what, what your thoughts are in terms of the way that I guess the, the industry has changed and the way that everyday people have such a broader sense of style and creativity. I feel like it's it's a new thing that people are really into interiors and, and designing and stuff and... And I feel like maybe the original contestants of the block were, were still just everyday people just kind of muddling along and doing their best. And now they're so savvy and we're seeing like <laughs> professional level 
um, completions, yeah, you know? Yeah, kind of, sort of. Yeah. Um, <laughs> look, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the, the fabulous thing about um, reality television, lifestyle television, you know, call it what you will, is that it has got us all excited about our homes. Mm. I often liken it to, you know, the MasterChef effect with food. Yes. You know, th- yeah. those TV shows came along and all of a sudden, you know, we're all chefs. Mm. It's, you know, it's good and bad. Yeah. But, but the good thing is that it has certainly created a, a new sense of pride in our homes. Mm. <sighs> Social media has also created a lot of confusion because even though there is so much information out there now, you know, if you look at Instagram, if you look at Pinterest, you know, YouTube, um, and, and, you know, just all the shows like Love It or List It, The Block, Selling Houses, people are a little sort of like, how can I put it? Sometimes they're like deer in the headlights. Mm-hmm. They don't know where to go. Yeah. So there is a huge need for people like me, I guess, and, and people in my profession to still edit. Mm-hmm. And help people cut through all the noise yes. because one thing I've found is that even though people are desperately keen to find their style they don't always know where to look for it mm, so true and I, I see you see that a lot with love it or list in mm. Australia a lot of people who have probably enormous renovations that need to take place and they just mm. don't even know where to start mm. I mean, you come in with the iPad and away you go. This wall's we go. coming down and this the, is... The magic of television. Yes. No, but the, the beauty of Love It or List It is, is that it is real. It's yeah. a genuine dilemma. Yeah. Um, and I love it because I get to meet real people and help them sort out their problems. Yeah. And it's, it's not... Um, for me, it's, it's not about interior decoration and design. I mean, that, you know, the renovations that we do on Love It or List It are not about giving people the new on-trend colour or the new sort of must-have sofa. Mm. It's it's much more fundamental than that. It's about sorting out their functionality problems. Mm. You know, the styling is, is the icing on the cake. Yeah. But what these people want more than anything is that extra bedroom or that yes. extra bathroom or a new kitchen mm. or a better floor plan or more room for the kids or something. You know, that, that, that's, that's what they want. Yes. That's what they want. So it's actually about sorting out their wish list and giving the house functionality and then the styling is really the last part of the jigsaw puzzle do they get to keep the styling some of it not all okay. of it no i mean i i have to be honest with you that a lot of the stuff is is brought in for styling yeah. um and they but they know that the homeowners yeah. know that they get um, to keep the pillows where the tag gets ripped <laughs> off i'm sure yeah, they, no, they, they do and, and depending on who the sponsors are yeah right Depending okay. on who the sponsors are for that season, yeah. um, they do get to keep some of it. Yeah. Um, but you know, we, we can always work things out for them. If you know, there's something there they love the look of, we can always we can probably get them a mate's rate. Mm, good mm. to know. <laughs> the other question I had is: Are the budgets really reflective of the work that goes in? On love it or list it. On love it or list it, because I just think some of the transformations that you're able to do on a seemingly moderate budget. Mm. Are amazing. No, they, they genuinely are because yeah. one thing that people sort of don't always understand about Love It or List It is that we really genuinely do spend that couple's budget. Wow. I mean, bef- before you can be signed up as, as you know, homeowners on Love It or List It, you, you have to have that budget. Yeah. Um, which is why, you know, some of the homes they've got $200,000, sometimes they've only got $120,000. Um, but the budget is real. Mm. So the original renovation plans are based on that budget. And then anything else is like icing on the cake, yeah. you know, depending on sponsors. I guess the, the simple answer to your question is that over the last three years, we have developed relationships with 
damn good builders in Brizzy, in Melbourne, here in Sydney, who just really sort of go all out to bring those jobs in on budget. Occasionally, it's happened in the show, we've had to go back to the homeowners cap in hand and say, look, you know, we've got to do this, it's going to cost you another 10 grand. Got a restump. Yep. yep. I mean, that happens. That yep. happens. I mean, you know, not everyone has a contingency. Mm. Um, so there have been occasions when we've had to do that, where the, the, the final sort of tally has come in a bit over budget. Mm-hmm. But on the whole, we stick as closely as we can to that to that budget, which is why, you know, you'll hear me say, I can't give you everything. Yeah. You know, there's always something yep. that I just can't, you yes. know, on their wish list. Yeah. You know, sorry, no, you can't have that swimming pool that you want. Or, yeah. <laughs> the triple yeah. walk-in robe. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I don't know if it's intentional. I'm sure it is. But there's always, there always seems to be a female project manager yes. at every site, which I think is a really nice mm. thing to do, considering you've got the two male hosts mm. and you and Andrew Winter. And the other thing that I love, and it seems to have really ramped up this season, is the banter between <laughs> you and Andrew. It really, the, the narratives that you both, playing is gorgeous and Mm. just really nice to I mean I know it's not supposed to be nice but no it is nice it is nice I mean Andrew and I I mean basically what you see on camera is the way we really are okay I mean you know if if he was in the room now it would be exactly the same I mean we we have a very comfortable relationship with each other I mean we're we're a similar age I mean he will tell you of course that he's a lot younger than me Um, but we're a similar vintage Um, we're both English we both have a very similar sense of humor and I think we both have very similar similar cultural references Um, and sometimes you know we, we, we really we notice that the crew are just standing there sort of scratching their heads like what are these two talking about because we'll go off on some crazy ramble about some show we used to watch in England back in the 70s right. you know and we'll start sort of <laughs> <laughs> quoting dialogue and all that yeah. kind of stuff um, yeah we I think we we respect each other we don't want to be each other yeah so it's not competitive in that mm-hmm. way you know I've I respect his his real estate knowledge. He respects my interior design knowledge, yeah. and we have a bit of fun along the way. Mm. And yes, it's, you know, we both want to win. Of course, we do. But you know, at the end of the day, once once they've decided to love or list, we forget it and move on to the next one. You know? <laughs> I have to say, I'm always disappointed when they decide to list it because and I so think, am I. Yeah, I think it's <laughs> such a shame. It's such a beautiful job, and I would always want to stay. Uh, oh no, look, I I totally get it. Yeah. I mean, I it's a big decision for them, and you know, I I think that look, if 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 my redesign, my renovation has brought them closer to to sort of moving forward in their lives, that's a good thing. Yeah. You know, whether they decide to love or list, it, it doesn't matter. You know, they're moving on in one way or another. Very good. I'm glad you're not too attached to no, the project. Gosh, no, Very gosh, good. no. No, no, no. Now, I know we have to wrap up in a couple of minutes. So mm. what is next for you, Mr. Wataka? Mr. Wataka. Yes. Um, uh, that's a big question. And do you know what? I don't really know the answer because even at this advanced stage in my life, (laughs) I'm still kind of pursuing that organic career path that I was pursuing years ago. Um, I'm very much take it as it comes. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, if if the next couple of years remain the same as this year and last year, that's fine. Mm. You know, I love what I'm doing. I love making television. I'm very happy. I don't have an awful lot more time to, to play around with, to be honest yeah. with you, because the projects that I have at the moment take up an awful lot of time. Mm. Um, 
I would like to do more television. It's it's a medium that I enjoy, and I think it's a medium that has huge potential. Uh, you know, we're in an, we're in an era now where content or digit, you know, visual content is is everything. Yeah. Um, so I would like to continue to work in that medium, mm-hmm. but I'm also very aware that I need to find a bit of work life balance and spend a bit more time with my partner David um, down at our beautiful home on the south coast. Mm. So um, you know, I've I've got to find that balance. But look, I feel in, in a pretty good place. You know, there, there's no there's no big challenge that I'm working towards. Um, we'll just see what see what happens. Fantastic. Well, I love everything that you're doing, and I'm sure people will be thrilled to keep seeing you on television. Thank you. What is the best way for people to get in touch if they'd like to see what you're up to? Uh, to follow me on social media, um, mm-hmm. my Instagram account is probably the best place to start. That's just Instagram at Neil Whitaker. Um, and of course, I'm on Facebook too, Neil Whitaker. So that's that's probably the best place. Excellent. Well, I will put all of those links in the show notes. Thank and you. And I want to thank you so much for your time, and thank you for joining me in this lovely hotel, the Lamont. Yes, it is. Potts Point. And um, I look forward to seeing what comes next for you. Thank you. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you, and thank you for having me on the Curious Life. I don't know whether I've had a curious life, Mm. actually. Um, I don't know whether I meet those criteria, but uh, it's certainly (laughs) been a fun one, an interesting one. (laughs) Fabulous. Well, thank you so much, Neil. Thanks, Yana.